Welcome. My name is Angelle Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. I'm a true crime fan, freak, fanatic, addict, however you want to package that. Have at it. My earliest memories of true crime are actually sitting with my grandmother, and she was a huge fan of true crime, and she read that True Detective magazine. It clearly did have an effect on me, and I'm sure she did not intend to. And, well, that's a little insight on what my family's all about. They were pretty graphic from what I remember about True Detective magazine. Now I'm going to have to go get one. I've been in radio for a long time, so audio and sound isn't foreign to me. I really got to give it up for people in the true crime scene or, or the true crime community. This is really a lot of work and truly a labor of love. There should be an award for that. Oh, wait, there is, isn't there? Thank you for checking out the very first Crime of the Truest Kind. I did get a surprising number of downloads for the trailer. Thank you. I wasn't expecting thousands. Uh, it was less than thousands, but more than zero. Now, if you will indulge me, I would like to tell you about James J. Bulger Jr. Episode 1. I'm from Massachusetts. I grew up in a small town outside of Boston, about 30 miles north. And when my family would visit relatives in Pennsylvania, they would always ask us, how's Boston? We'd scoff and say that we didn't live in Boston. We were snot-nosed kids with dirty fingernails who just traveled 15 hours in the back of a truck. But the truth is, when you grow up near Boston, it's kind of Boston. Most in our general vicinity are born with a special attribute of being in on the joke, filled to the brim with sarcasm. Most of us. It's dickish, I know. And the accent. What's unfortunate is that they mostly get it wrong. Unless you're from here, but oftentimes they still get it wrong. I call it the perfect storm of terrible. Yeah, that goes out to you, Diane Lane. We always watch the movies and make loads of fun of it. And there have been a lot over the last few years. It's the tax credits, usually about bank robberies, boxing, and bagpipes, with some hysterical woman with a gutter mouth, ripping butts, all the obvious stereotypes. Thanks, though, to the Afflecks and the Wahlbergs and the Dropkick Murphys, all of whom seem to appear in most of these movies. The fucking departed. Yeah, I know. It's obnoxious. The movie about Whitey Bulger. I really shouldn't say that. It's the Jack Nicholson character modeled on the misdeeds of one Whitey Bulger, reportedly and directed by Martin Scorsese. I won't even pretend, though. I love the stuff. No word of a lie. Now, this is not a podcast that is about Boston specifically, but please do know that references are inevitable. Whitey Bulger, leader of the Winter Hill Gang. Murder Kingpin, the stacked Jack of Death, the Lord of the Underworld. James Joseph Bulger Jr. was a fixture in organized crime in the East. His nickname came from his towhead blonde hair as a child. Towhead may or may not be Boston vernacular. I have no idea. My mom said it. His brutal rule ran from the 1970s through the early 90s when he disappeared. He used violence to gain power, keep order, and eliminate threats. He ran a criminal enterprise for decades, and sometimes he's called the Irish Godfather. 
James Bulger wanted to be thought of as the saint of South Boston, the nice young man who carried bundles for old ladies, Southie's Robin Hood. The myths and mob stories are legendary. It's Whitey who ruled the streets with an iron fist. That's when he's not strangling women to death for what they may know. His deeds were dirty. His acts were ruthless. He killed innocent people, set them up, lied to get them sent to prison, put hits out on those he thought were informants, all while he was the biggest rat of them all. Whitey Bulger lied until the day that he died, denying that he was an FBI informant. His list of accomplishments included murder, conspiracy, extortion, narcotics distribution, money laundering, gun running for the IRA during the height of the Troubles, and sexual assault, allegedly, though he was never charged or convicted with any sex crimes. It has been reported that teenage girls were often victims of their crimes as well. Waddy Bulger's life of crime began as a kid. His first run-in with the law was at 14. He'd go on to spend years in notorious prisons like Leavenworth in Kansas and Alcatraz in San Francisco. He seemed especially proud about his time at The Rock and told anyone who would listen about his time there. Convicted of armed robbery in 1956, Bulger was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison and sent to the United States Penitentiary Atlanta, a minimum security penitentiary with an adjacent minimum security satellite camp and a detention center. His inmate files show that he was subjected to extreme testing under the MK Ultra Project. It's a code name the U.S. government used for a covert research operation as a behavioral engineering experiment and mind control on inmates with the CIA's Scientific Intelligence Division. The program began in the early 1950s and officially halted in 1973. All activities were illegal and use inmates as lab rats through the practice of manipulating their mental states to alter brain function with the use of acid and other chemicals, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, and torture. Whitey often mentioned this as the cause for ongoing nightmares, hallucinations, and his inability to sleep. In 2017, Whitey Bulger wrote about his experiences with the MK Ultra Project for Aussie Magazine. In 1957, while a prisoner at the Atlanta Penitentiary, I was recruited by Dr. Carl Pfeiffer of Emory University to join a medical project that was researching a cure for schizophrenia. For our participation, we would receive three days of good time for each month on the project. Each week, we'd be locked in a secure room in the basement of the prison hospital in an area where mental patients were housed. We went in from 9 a.m. Tuesday to 9 a.m. Wednesday. We were injected with massive doses of LSD-25. In minutes, the drug would take over, and about eight or nine men, Dr. Pfeiffer and several men in suits who were not doctors, would give us tests to see how we reacted. Eight convicts in a panic and paranoid state. Total loss of appetite. Hallucinating. The room would change shape. Hours of paranoia and feeling violent. We experienced horrible periods of living nightmares, even blood coming out of the walls. Guys turning into skeletons in front of me. I saw a camera change into the head of a dog. I felt like I was going insane. The men in suits would be in a room and hook me up to machines, asking questions like, Did you ever kill anyone? Would you kill someone? Two men went psychotic. They had all the symptoms of schizophrenia. They had to be pried loose from under their beds, growling, barking, and frothing at the mouth. They put them in a strip cell down the hall. I never saw or heard of them again. They failed the Babinski test. Lots of tests that have caused me sleeping problems and nightmares to the present. 
They told us we were helping find a cure for schizophrenia. When it was over, everyone would feel suicidal and depressed, wrung out emotionally. Time would stand still. I tried to quit, but Dr. Pfeiffer would appeal to me. Please, you're my best subject. We're so close to finding a cure. Years later, when I read the book The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, which came out in 1979, it was written by State Department whistleblower John Marks, I found out there was a CIA project codenamed MKUltra. The project was a violation of my rights, using prisoners for dangerous tests. I was angry reading that because I'd never mentioned how I felt hallucinating. I kept silent because I thought they might commit me to a mental institution. I never slept more than two or three hours a night, waking up in cold sweats with side effects. The test damaged my sleep and gave me nightmares. I had to sleep with the lights on and only for a few hours at a time. The government used us and never tried to help us after injecting us with government LSD. I've had brain scans that told me I was damaged by the tests. The government did a number on us and walked. If anybody opened a shop selling LSD in my neighborhood, he would have lost his life. Prisoners changed for the worse. Longer sentences, no mandatory release, no parole after one-third of your time. More laws covering weirdos. They are everywhere you look. In this place, they banded together and said to the guards, you have TVs for blacks, whites, Native Americans, and Spanish. What about TVs for sex offenders? Needless to say, the guards flipped out. I was there when they formed their little gang. They're protected by hate crime statutes. In my case, three cooperating killers, Kevin Weeks, Stephen Fleming, and John Martirano, took deals from prosecutors that allowed them to keep their assets, sign book deals to make money, and not have to pay any fines. My lawyer asked Martirano in court how many murders he committed, and he answered, I can't remember them all. This guy cut someone's head off. He used a knife, a shotgun, and a machine gun with a silencer. He had been free for more than 10 years. Weeks did eight months for each murder he committed. I was found guilty of murder, extortion, gun possession, and using violence in the furtherance of organized crime. They had 53 weapons that they said I kept for my own personal arsenal. One of the killers testified that I wanted them handy in case I wanted to kill someone in a hurry and called them my murder kit. There was a grenade in this murder kit too. Kevin Weeks and the other cooperating killers confessed to all their murders and more, but they said, I did it, but Whitey told me to do it. The feds came up with seven bodies that the cooperating killers led them to. They told the feds that Whitey killed them and I buried them. I never said anything during the trial, but twice I had had enough of their lies and said to FBI agent John Morris, you're a fucking liar. I had to laugh when the prosecutor told the judge, Your Honor, Mr. Bulger said the FBI agent is a fucking liar. When he did, I repeated, He is. The judge told me to be quiet or I would be removed from the court. I cooled it then because I didn't want to make the sideshow bigger than the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. My lawyer was threatened with legal actions if he mentioned certain names at my trial or even offered up what my defense was. My attorney argued, Why can't we tell the jury and let them decide? But no, no. In the county jail, they told me that I couldn't talk to anyone and no one could talk to me. The guards used to harass me five times a day to make my bed and get up, even though I never left the cell or talked to anyone. They said they were following the orders of the U.S. government. By the early 1970s, Whitey, free as a bird, had been a hood kicking around the city. And I don't know if hood is a Boston term, but my mother also said that. Anyway... Whitey begins his ascent through the ranks of the Winter Hill Gang, the preeminent Irish-American crime syndicate in Greater Boston. His six-year-old son, Douglas Glenn Sear, died in 1973 of Rye Syndrome. 
it was a severe allergic reaction to aspirin. It definitely had an effect on Bulger. Before his only son's death, the savage killer was somehow a doting father and spent time with his son as often as he could. His girlfriend and Douglas's mother, Lindsay Sear, told the Boston Globe that he changed after Douglas died. He was colder. Up until his death, Douglas's existence is believed to have been a secret. He is the only known child of Bulger, and it was likely that only closest associates and some of his family members knew of him. Lindsay Sear said Bulger worried constantly that his enemies would target the boy if they knew Douglas was his, and he was devastated when he died. The summer of 1974 was a particularly dark and chaotic time in Boston's history. A class action lawsuit against the Boston School Committee led to a federal district court ruling that they had intentionally segregated black children in Boston public schools. A judge's ruling required the implementation of the state's Racial Imbalance Act, requiring any Boston school with a student enrollment that was more than 50% non-white to be balanced according to race. When South Boston neighbors learned their kids would be sent out of their neighborhoods and children from the city's predominantly black neighborhoods would be bused in, fear was sold on the idea that busing kids back and forth was the best solution to desegregate. Chaos and unrest was brewing in the streets of Southie and some 18,000 black and white students were ordered to take buses to schools outside of their neighborhoods. Anti-busing demonstrations grew larger and louder. White parents in Southie refused to send their children to schools in Dorchester. The buses carrying black students from Dorchester were pelted by rocks as South Boston High School became a battlefield. Tactical officers were sent to keep the peace. Racial violence fueled even more crime. The unrest lasted for years and may be best illustrated by the soiling of old glory, the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph taken by Stanley Foreman during the Boston busing crisis in 1976. It depicts a white teenager named Joseph Rakes assaulting black attorney and civil rights activist Ted Landsmark with a flagpole. The unrest was driving city dwellers who could afford to leave into the outlying suburbs. Racism was venomous, and it was violent, a perfect breeding ground for a criminal like Whitey Bulger to flourish. He was bringing drugs and crime into neighborhoods, fully expecting it to be blamed on everyone else. Whitey Bulger is still celebrated to this day by people who will tell you, well, he was good to me, or those who believe he was taking good care of the neighborhood. It is believed that in late August or early September of 1974, Bulger and an accomplice torched the Kingsbury Elementary School in the affluent town of Wellesley, Massachusetts, with the intention of intimidating U.S. District Court Judge Wendell Arthur Garrity Jr. over his mandated plan to desegregate schools in the city of Boston by means of busing. The following year, September 1975, Bulger and an unidentified associate firebombed the John F. Kennedy birthplace in Brookline, Massachusetts. This in retaliation for Senator Ted Kennedy's support of Boston school desegregation. Bulger spray-painted Bus Teddy on the sidewalk out front. He was never a suspect in either of the arsons, and the one at Kennedy's birthplace cost $30,000 in damage and closed the site for more than three months. That same year, Waddy Bulger finally agrees to become an informant for the FBI in order to bring down the Italian mob in New England. This, we learn, is in exchange for protection from prosecution, and this, we also learn, is as corrupt as it gets. By early 1979, federal prosecutors indicted numerous members of the Winter Hill Gang for fixing horse races, including boss Howie Winter. Both Whitey Bulger and Stevie the Rifleman Flemmy, who got his nickname from his sharp shooting skills in Korea, were both supposed to be part of this indictment, but FBI agents John Connolly and his direct supervisor, 
Agent John Morris, were able to convince the prosecutor in the case to drop the charges against them at the last minute. The deadly duo of Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming took over the Winter Hill Gang and worked their status as informants to crush their competition. Yes, Fleming is also an informant. Intel that they were able to provide to the FBI in the years that followed was responsible for the arrest and conviction of several associates that Whitey Bulger saw as a threat. No group was more targeted by Whitey and his henchmen than the Boston Mafia kingpins, the Patriarcha family, who were based in Boston's North End in a federal hill in Providence, Rhode Island. Along with the Winter Hill Gang leg breakers and life takers, that's also my new band, Kevin Weeks, John Martirano, and sometimes associate Pat Nee, they spent the 1980s taking down the Italian mob. It was a decade full of carnage at the hands and behest of Whitey Bulger. In early 1981, Roger Wheeler, owner of World Highlight Games, had figured out that the Winter Hill Gang were skimming money and fixing games. Known as the fastest game in the world, it's played in a court called a fronton. It's not unlike racquetball or tennis, with the hard ball traveling as fast as a baseball pitch, which also makes it dangerous. Betting on games was common. The game was all the rage in Miami in the 70s and was called America's New Super Sport. There's an abandoned fronton reportedly owned by promoter Don King in West Palm Beach, Florida. I was too young and I can't say anyone in my house ever watched or participated in Highlight, but it was very popular. It is believed that Bulger and Fleming were pulling in as much as $10,000 a week skimming from parking lot fees and rigging games. Once Whitey Bulger caught wind of Wheeler closing in, he sent hitman John Moderano to intercept Wheeler after his regular Wednesday afternoon golf game. Moderano let him have it, shooting him between the eyes in broad daylight in the parking lot of his country club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In January 1982, Brian Halloran, a drug dealer and former Winter Hill associate, goes to the FBI with details about the Roger Wheeler murder and that he had been offered the contract by former Highlight President John Callahan. He implicates Bulger, Fleming, and former FBI agent Paul Rico, who by then had been hired by Callahan as the VP and Chief of Security. <laughs> Chief of Security, that's a good one. The Fed spends six weeks interviewing Halloran before deciding he is not credible. This scene plays out in the movie Black Mass with sufficient tension. Halloran kept in contact with the Feds, and as you might guess, Whitey Bulger finds out from his crooked agents in the Boston FBI office. On May 12, 1982, Bulger and Fleming are tipped off to the whereabouts of Brian Halloran, who they knew was ratting them out to the Feds. Their newest recruit, former Triple O's pub bouncer, 26-year-old Kevin Weeks. 26 is a significant number with these people. He was called on to participate in his first Winter Hill Gang murder. Weeks was tasked to serve as a lookout as Halloran, or Balloon Head, as he was known on the street. And construction worker Michael Donahue had been spotted on the Boston waterfront. Weeks testified that he parked at Anthony's Pier 4, where he had a clear view of Halloran sitting in the bar across the street. When he saw Halloran was on the move, he radioed, the balloon is in the air over walkie-talkie. The cue for Bulger and another unidentified shooter to ambush the car Halloran and Donahue were in. As they let loose a spray of bullets, Michael Donahue, a completely innocent victim with no association to the Winter Hill gang, was shot in the head and killed instantly. Halloran was able to stagger away but died at the scene. It was yet another Winter Hill gang massacre in broad daylight. FBI agent John Connolly filed a report with the Bureau blaming rivals for the assassinations. Fallout from the Roger Wheeler murder was still hot that summer. In July 1982, Waddy Bulger ordered the hit on John Callahan, the former president of World Highlight, to shut him up about their money skimming and murder schemes. 
Investigators had heard rumblings about Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill crew and were descending on Boston in search for Callahan. Federal organized crime strike force prosecutor Jeremiah O'Sullivan, who was using Bulger and Fleming to build a racketeering case against Jerry Angiulo of the Italian mob, admits that Brian Halloran tried to join the Federal Witness Protection Program, but they turned their backs on him. Meanwhile, John Callahan remains missing until August, when his decomposing body is found stuffed in the trunk of his Cadillac in a parking garage at the Miami airport. He was shot repeatedly in the head. John Monterano later cops to his murder. Boston in the 80s was bloody. September 1983. Gennaro Jerry Angiulo, New England mob underboss who rose through the ranks of the Boston Mafia and the Patriarcha family, is arrested. The FBI had wiretapped their headquarters in the North End two years earlier, thanks to the handiwork of Bulger and Fleming. The two had planned it out and told the agents where to put the bugs. At the time of his arrest, Angiulo had bragged that he'd be back before his pork chops got cold. Yeah, I don't think that happened. In 1986, Jerry Angiulo was convicted on 12 counts of racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, and obstruction of justice, and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Acting as his own lawyer, Angiulo argued unsuccessfully to have his conviction overturned, including a claim that he was framed by the FBI, Bulger, and Fleming. When Jerry Angiulo went away, it was believed that he was the last of the great mob figures of our time. Raymond Patriarca, the family's boss, whose control extended through New England for more than three decades, died in July of 1984. And after the 1986 RICO indictment of Angiulo and his associates, the Patriarch of Families Boston operations were in shambles. This provided a nice in for Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming to take over more of the stake in Boston's organized crime. Many men are dead as a result of their association with Whitey Bulger. Whether they were directly involved with organized crime or not, the gang did not discriminate. Whitey Bulger was very paranoid and had a substantial hit list for anyone he thought might talk. It is not known exactly how many people Whitey Bulger killed during his legendary reign of terror. He was charged with the murders of 19 people, including two women. Deborah Davis was a beautiful 17-year-old jewelry store clerk when she met Stephen Fleming. He charmed her with lavish gifts. They had a nine-year relationship that she was trying to get out of. By then, she knew a lot about the Winter Hill Gang's criminal exploits. She knew they were working with the FBI. She knew they had been turned. Flemmy admitted to Bulger that he'd revealed her involvement as informants one night to get Davis off his back for leaving a party for another late-night meeting. Bulger exercised his control and convinced Flemmy that Davis was a distraction and a liability to their underworld empire racket. Deborah Davis spent the day of September 17, 1981 with her mother, Olga, when she got a call from Fleming coaxing her out of the house. His ruse was to come see a property that he had just bought. She reluctantly agreed, but only after confiding in her mother that she wanted to end the relationship. Fleming brought 26-year-old Davis to his mother's house in South Boston, right next door to William Bulger, brother of Whitey, who was the then state Senate president. It was there where Bulger was waiting. Fleming testified to her murder. As soon as we walked in, in a matter of seconds, he grabbed her by the neck. Whitey Bulger strangled her to death with his bare hands. They pulled out her teeth, stripped her naked, and wrapped her in a tarp to bury her in the beach along the Neponset River in Quincy. It's there where she stayed until 2000. Flemmy went on to mourn with her family and told her mother he'd hired a private investigator to find her. All theatrics. He had moved on to sexually abuse Deborah Davis's 14-year-old sister. It is something Michelle Davis had kept secret out of grief and shame. She died in January 2006 of a drug overdose. 
more collateral damage of Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming. Olga Davis died in April 2007, never seeing Whitey Bulger face prosecution for her daughter's brutal murder. Because both of the women Whitey Bulger was charged with killing are both named Deborah, the stories sometimes get confused. Both were 26 when they died, and both were found many years after they had disappeared. Deborah Davis was D-E-B-R-A, while Deborah Hussey was D-E-B-O-R-A-H. It is important for me to make that distinction. Both were victims of cruel and ruthless men, men whose criminal activities were allowed to infect the city under the corrupt hand of the Boston Bureau of the FBI. Deborah Hussey was Stevie Fleming's stepdaughter. He'd raised her since she was small. He met her mother Marion in 1960 when she was two years old. He brought her to school, read her stories. Deborah Hussey called him daddy. By her early 20s, it is believed she was using drugs, doing sex work, and dropping Winter Hill gang names to avoid trouble. And Whitey did not like a talker, as ironic as that was, considering he was a big fat rat. And he insisted to Stevie Flemmy that she had to go. On the day of her death, Flemmy took her shopping, knowing what was to come. Stevie Flemmy was sexually abusing his stepdaughter in what he called a moment of weakness, twice. Instances that he called consensual. Deborah Hussey told her mother about the relationship. Flemmy blamed her involvement with drugs and prostitution for an invitation to sex. He can say whatever he wants. Deborah Hussey isn't here to tell her story. For this, Waddy Bulger considered Hussey a liability to their criminal empire. Flemmy agreed to deliver her to her death by bringing her to the Haunty, the grim murder house at 799 East 3rd Street in South Boston, owned, at the time, by Associate Patney. The house, by the way, is scheduled for demolition to make room for condos. South Boston has been over-gentrified. People from there can't even afford to live there. And it sold in the summer of 2020 for $2.8 million. It's a death house where many unlucky people came face to face with Bulger's wrath. On that January day in 1985, 26-year-old Deborah Hussey walked into the kitchen and Whitey stepped out from atop the basement stairs, grabbed her from behind, and put his hands around her throat. Losing his balance, the two toppled over, but he never lost his grip, squeezing the life from her body while Flemmy waited in the kitchen. During Whitey Bulger's trial, Flemmy testified that it didn't take long. She was a very fragile woman. Killing wore Whitey out, he went upstairs to nap, leaving Flemmy and Kevin Weeks to clean up his mess, dig Deborah Hussey's grave in the dirt floor, pull out her teeth, and pound them to powder, a signature move. Then they buried her in the basement next to other unlucky visitors. Arthur Bucky Barrett, a thief and bank robber targeted for extortion by the Winter Hill Gang, and John McIntyre, the Quincy fisherman who had cooperated with the authorities regarding Whitey's drug smuggling and gun running for the IRA. The bodies lay there buried in the cold dirt until the house sold in 1985. Years later, when Kevin Weeks was facing a life sentence, he agreed to cooperate with the feds for his involvement with the Winter Hill Gang. It was then he gave up the location of the bodies and brought the authorities to the second burial site in Dorchester in 2000. The families were finally able to learn what had happened to their loved ones all those years before. It also meant that all hope was gone for their return. Associating with the Winter Hill Gang came with very serious and violent consequences. Whitey Bulger ruled with an iron fist. The 80s were killer years for the Winter Hill Gang. No one knows for sure, but a decade of murder and mayhem had to be worth millions of dollars. The 90s rolled in and his reign would soon be coming to an end. Stevie the Rifleman Fleming, John Martirano, and Kevin Weeks were about to pay for their crimes. The 1990s saw Whitey Bulger's dirty deeds thrust into the international spotlight. 
fame he was not seeking. By the end of 1994, the heat was on. Word reached Whitey Bulger that an indictment was imminent. Tipped off by the corrupt FBI agent and childhood friend John Connolly, associate Kevin Weeks delivered the message on a snowy night in Boston's Copley Square in the midst of holiday shoppers. Sealed indictments had come from the Department of Justice and the FBI was set to make arrests during the holidays. I'm going to stop right here. That concludes Episode 1, Crime of the Truest Kind. On Episode 2 next week, we will talk about Whitey's getaway, where he goes, what he does, and I also interview Dave Wedge, co-author of the new book, Hunting Whitey. We talk about the book. We talk about what he and his co-author Casey Sherman learned about Whitey's life on the run for 16 years. And we also talk about his brutal death in prison in West Virginia. Find me online, crimeofthetruestkind.com, Facebook, Crime of the Truest Kind, Instagram, Crime of the Truest Kind, email, crimeofthetruestkind at gmail.com, Twitter, at truestkind. Follow and subscribe on just about every platform you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. All resource material for this and all of my writing online, crimeofthetruestkind.com. Special ambient music provided by only one, Joe Kowalski, Boston, Massachusetts. Episode two of the Wadi Bulger Saga next Thursday, online everywhere. My name is Angel Wood. Thank you for listening and lock your damn doors. 